1: of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Lisa Brown. Lisa is a partner and wealth advisor for CI Brightworth, an RIA under the CI financial umbrella with offices in Atlanta, Georgia, and Charlotte, North Carolina, that oversees nearly $5 billion in assets under management for more than 1,500 client households. What's unique about Lisa, though, is how by digging deeper into an existing firm niche focus at Coca-Cola And talking extensively with employees there about their common needs and issues that affected their financial goals, she began to write white papers for them, which was so successful in building her reputation and expertise and client base within the company that she gave up her own office space because she was spending so much time with clients in their offices at Coca-Cola headquarters, which then just led to even more referrals and growth by being so visible on site at the company. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Lisa realized that by visiting Coca-Cola's headquarters consistently and engaging employees in person about their financial issues, she could become known as a familiar and trusted financial expert in the Coca-Cola community. How Lisa leveraged writing white papers about preparing for retirement and what to look for in severance packages in the event of a layoff, specifically for Coke employees as a niche to gain more referrals within the company. And how as a practice leader for corporate professionals and executives is one of C.I. Brightworth's four key practice areas, the others being business owners, dentists, and retiring clients. Lisa has been gone to train and guide the next generation of advisors in the firm about how they can become effective business developers by identifying, getting a known in their area of specialization too. We also to talk about how in the early stages of Lisa's career, she doubted her future in the financial services industry and decided to obtain an MBA as a fallback. But coincidentally, during her first semester, the program began offering a master's in financial planning that provided the same coursework for the CFP exam and ultimately led Lisa to get her CFP designation and find a successful path in the industry. How Lisa credits preparing tax returns for clients during her formative years at Goldman Sachs Aco is... One of the ways that she grew her confidence and expertise to feel more comfortable as an expert advisor in front of high net worth clients. And how Lisa leveraged four pillars in professional networking, joining organizations to attend networking events, public speaking, and creating content in the local media to build her personal brand and drive more referrals. And be certain to listen to the end, where Lisa shares how she hit a point where she realized working nights and weekends was taking away from the time she could be spending with her husband and children, had to force herself to get comfortable with prioritizing what was urgent versus really, truly important to regain more of her family time. Why Lisa feels it's important for newer, younger advisors to surround themselves with experienced advisors and take every opportunity to absorb knowledge and practices that they put forward to develop themselves and create a career path early on. And why Lisa believes the key to success for her at this point in her career is how she can impart the wisdom she's gained and sponsor younger advisors to help them build the skills and confidence that they need to become better advisors and find their own paths to success. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Lisa Brown. Welcome, Lisa Brown, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be here.
1: I'm I'm really looking forward to today's episode and and to talking a little bit about about business development and and bringing in new clients. And what to me is just a, a really interesting shift in how this happens in the industry because if you if you talk to most folks who started back in the it's it called like the the 1980s the 1990s, almost all the financial advisor jobs were uh, sales jobs. Like you worked for an insurance company or a broker dealer, you sold mutual funds or universal life or variable universal life. And if you did well enough at some point, you could go get your CFP marks and start doing financial planning. But you only got there if you were pretty good at sales and business development. Otherwise, you you literally didn't like qualify your contracts long enough to get to the point where you were allowed to become a financial planner. Over the past 20 years, that's really started to shift. And the growth of AUM firms, I think in particular, where there's this recurring revenue model, which means at some point firms just want to hire advisors to be awesome advisors for the clients they've already got, regardless of whether you bring in any, creates all these new career opportunities for wonderful financial advisors who may not have much experience experience, or even interest in business development. Except at some point from a career perspective, you can only go so far in that career if at some point you can't figure out how to bring in clients and and, and grow the business. Most advisory firms will pay a, a lead advisor pretty well, but it's really hard to, as the label goes, like make partner if you're not able to bring in clients and make the pie bigger. And it's very similar to the model in accounting and law and other professions as well. And so I know you've lived the latter version of this path, like starting out in, in a journey that did not have any business development because you wanted to do financial planning things, and now have, I think I Gone to the other end of the extreme that you're, you're doing business development, you're driving business development, you're actually teaching other advisors within the firm how to do business development. Uh, that I just, I'm excited to talk about this journey of how you go from, I don't do business development to, oh, wait, I think I can do business development. And, and how, when and how that shift came for you. So I, I think to kick off, just so we understand the overall context. Can you tell us a little bit about your advisory firm as it exists today and and your role within the firm?
2: Sure. So I am with CI Brightworth. Uh, We are one of the partner firms under the CI private wealth umbrella. Um, CI Financial, uh, originally from a Canadian firm, came into the U.S. in, in early 2020 and started partnering with RIAs across the country. And so there's now about 25 RIAs under the CI financial umbrella in the U.S., uh, again, our firm being one of them. Um, and so I've, I've been with Brightworth since 2005, so about 17 years. Um, and, and now we are CI Brightworth. And you know, I think that the, this journey as I look back, you know, over the last couple of decades has, has been really, really incredible, but probably more excited now about the future than I I probably have been in a long time because of the new opportunities and and new colleagues that that I'm working with as, as part of uh, being under the CI umbrella.
1: So help us understand first just at the Brightworth level, like what what the firm looks like.
2: Sure, so we have an office in Atlanta, Georgia and Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, uh, there's about 90 associates uh, between the two offices, and we have four practice areas that we specialize in and, and really market to from a business development standpoint. So I'm in charge of the corporate professionals and executive services group. Uh, we have a group that specializes in business owners, a group that specializes in working with dentists, and then our retiring well practice area. So this is this is really more content. Creation and, and deliverables that are important to our client segment that are retired or, or nearing retirement. So we didn't we didn't used to you know, we didn't always have these four practice areas. You know, when I started at the firm in two thousand five. I felt we were a little bit more of, you know, everything to everyone. So we, we worked with attorneys and widows and divorcees and athletes and business owners and executives. And, and we still do. We still have a, a, a wide variety of clientele, but the marketing focus and the content that we create is really focused now on these four practice areas
1: so am i am I thinking about this right to essentially say like the practice areas are essentially niches for you, but because you've got multiple niches under the firm, like you call them practice areas and and you've kind of structured team around that
2: that's correct that's that's exactly what that is so our firm brightworth was was actually started by two gentlemen in the nineteen eighties uh Dave Polster and Chris Dardaman, and they Uh, built most of their clientele uh, being corporate executives of Fortune 500 companies, in particular Coca-Cola. And so, so over the years, most of our our client base were these corporate executives. And, uh, you know, as, as that's evolved over the years, we've expanded into practice areas, you know, focus niches in different, different these four different types of of clients and their particular needs and concerns. And it really helps to drive your messaging much more clearly um, and and find the clients you're you're looking to work for. And and clients can see that you work with people like them um, when your messaging is a little bit more targeted. So that's, that's been successful for us. We, you know, again, our, our firm was built on a base of corporate executives and we still have lots and lots and lots of corporate executives and, and do a lot of training here, you know, through my team to, to train the planners and the younger advisors on the technicalities of working with corporate executives. Uh, But this is, you know, I would say this is our bread and butter of our company and, and still is one of the focus areas that we have.
1: So, from a from a practice areas, and I guess I'm just wondering, is this uh, is this primarily a marketing thing? Like, here are the different specialties we have, and you can, as you noted, like it facilitates the marketing focus because you can make content for business owners and content for dentists and content for corporate executives. So is this a, a marketing nomenclature around here are the types of clients that we specialize with? Or is this literally part of the, the structure of the firm? Like, There are certain advisors and team members and like you're assigned to the dentist practice area versus the, the corporate professionals and executives practice area.
2: Yeah, so it's both. So our Charlotte, North Carolina office, the planners and advisors, they're primarily focused on the, the dental industry. Um, and they have a deep expertise in working with dentists and helping you know, dentists sell their practice and setting up retirement plans for these dental offices and looking at the P&L statements and the business side of it. So there's, there's a really deep expertise and specialty there. But that doesn't mean that every advisor or planner working in our our Charlotte office can only work with dentists. So we do have a handful of corporate executives that we serve uh, out of that office that are that are local to that Charlotte area. And then conversely in our Atlanta office, uh, say most of the planners and advisors work with business owners and uh, corporate executives here, as well as the, the practice, the retiring well practice area. But we have intentionally over the last few years tried to do a lot more cross training of our our financial planners to give them exposure to working with all the different client types. So we're not trying to pigeonhole somebody to only work with one type of client. We want to provide the training uh, and and develop the technical expertise with the different types of clients that we serve and are looking to serve more of. But allowing our our planners and, and younger advisors to find what niche they're more comfortable working in i know for me i started my career working with corporate executives and and i i never changed my focus i loved it it was such a great fit for me Um, I I was fortunate there. I know a lot of advisors might, might, you know, try to dabble in a couple different client types and then figure out what sticks. Um, But we believe that giving, from a training standpoint, giving our financial planners and and younger advisors exposure to different types of clients um, will help them find what path they want to go down.
1: But does that mean like eventually they, if they try a few, are they supposed to pick one eventually? Like, hey, you've You've rotated through all four now. Like, which one are you going after, or or can they can they continue to rotate and work across lots of different practice areas at, at once on an ongoing basis? Yeah,
2: typically, at once you become a wealth advisor, you've you've narrowed down where you want to focus. Um, one of our advisors, for example, Josh, he uh, works with a lot of corporate executives, but has found his own particular niche in special needs planning. So that's not something that, that's not one of our four pillars as a firm that we market and and train around, but that's an area he's really enjoyed. He's got a designation in it now. Um, He's built relationships with attorneys in the local area who focus on special needs planning. Um, And so that freedom and flexibility to to find your own path and build your, your client base like that absolutely exists here. Um, but again, that's something he really pursued on his own rather than the firm, you know, supporting that, that niche and, and developing training around it.
1: And so then how does, I, I guess, like the more senior advisors or leadership work within the practice areas? Cause you're, you're kind of framing this around, it's like the, the, the more associate advisors coming up to be full wealth advisors. Like you get to cross train across, uh, across multiple practice areas, you tend to start narrowing down your focus to one. Maybe you'll go up a, a new different direction, but otherwise, you tend to tend to pick one of the four. Uh, how does it work for, I guess, just established advisors or or the leadership folks? Are are they also rotating around, or do they also, or do they tend to have a particular one that they focus on as well? Yeah,
2: they tend to have a particular one they focus on. So there's four four leaders at the company, we call them practice area leaders. So again, I I, I lead our corporate executives group. Um, And so you have somebody who is, you know, really in charge of making sure we're delivering the content, the marketing strategies, doing business development in this area, training on business development in this area, um, overseeing the technical training uh, for the particular practice area. Um, And, but we, we, you know, we have uh, partner advisors who have established books of business, you know, they're bringing in business themselves and they're still participating in one of the practice areas, but less on the, you know, the training side, right? They're, they're pretty much trained up and they're more kind of running and and doing their thing and building their book. And eventually they'll get to the point where their book of business is full and they're still bringing in clients, but referring those clients on to more, you know, less, less seasoned advisors to help them build their books of business.
1: Interesting so so it similar in many ways as I hear that too a lot of advisory firms that tend to build multi-advisor teams where there's a more senior person who drives some of the leadership takes the most senior clients and uh, and does a lot of the business development that that gets handed off to other clients but in your co- in your framework they, that's not just about teaming per se the senior advisor at the top of that, uh, pyramid maybe leading a particular practice area, and so they they end up being all into that practice area and developing the advisors right. in that practice area and doing the training in that practice area and doing the business development in that practice area, and that's part of their honed focus at the at the at the senior level.
2: That's right, and if you think about from a business continu- continuity standpoint you want those leaders to be eventually working themselves out of a job right so we should do such a good job of of overseeing and training and developing that that we have another set of leaders coming behind us that can take the ball and and run with it so we can continue to serve our clients with excellence and bring in more clients and and you know keep you know, keep the continuity of, of what we built over the years going for the future. And I found in, in my personal experience, you know, as an advisor and moving more into the business development side, you know, the light bulb went off when, when I realized several years ago if it if I go really deep in working with executives that work at one company, I can serve a whole lot of people without actually having to work that hard to do it. and 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 sales is actually really easy. I mean, it was so easy to pick up clients at the company i I really had my focus in was Coca-Cola. Because I knew how all of their comp and benefits plans worked inside and out, I could recite those rules in my sleep. Um, That confidence that I exuded, that confidence, people saw how well versed I was, and told all their, their coworkers uh, about me. So it really, um, I think it makes the advisor's job a whole lot easier if they can go deep in one area. Now you've got to like that area. You know, you don't want to specialize in something that, that you don't want to talk about all day long, but, um, but if you find that particular passion, uh, that, that in terms of the practice area, the specialty, I mean, life's good and it's, it's, it's easy.
1: So how did practice areas come about for the firm? I mean, was it like a conscious thing? Hey, this is what the attorneys and accountants do. We're going to try that model in our advisory firm. Uh, like wh- where did it come from and, and when did it come?
2: Our firm was built around working with with corporate executives. And then we had a smattering of, of other client types. Um, in 2017, we acquired uh, the the office that's, that's in Charlotte that specializes in dentists. And so now we have you know, two practice areas, right? The dental specialty and the corporate executive specialty. And it was right around that time um, that we uh, we also uh, engaged with with another colleague who, who came on board that had a particular specialty in working with business owners and helping business owners sell their practice. Um, and so... You know, now we have a third area of expertise that we've really grown and and, and trained around um, and and developed marketing strategies around. And, and coupled with that, you know, with a lot of our executives having retired at this point, um, knowing that there was it was really important to focus on our retirees and address issues important to them. Um, Our retiring well practice area was formed. So a lot of this really came about in the last, you know, five to seven years or so. Um, Going, looking a little bit further into the corporate executive space, for many, many years, we had said internally, we want to go find our next Coca-Cola. So we built this incredible niche at Coca-Cola, um, really, you know, knew, knew everyone there, everyone knew us. Um, we wanted to go replicate that at other companies. And so we said, well, we figured out the secret formula to go, to go deep with Coca-Cola, let's take that formula and go, you know, try to infiltrate other companies. So we've also been on a journey uh, of doing that to continue to grow and expand our company and expand our specialties within the corporate execs area.
1: And then just so we understand the the overall scope of the the firm, I guess just total of clients or assets or revenue or like however you you evaluate overall size and scope of the firm.
2: Yeah. So we've got... Uh, we manage a little over five billion of of assets in our management. Uh, a little over fifteen hundred clients between our Atlanta and Charlotte office. Um, you know, half of about half of those clients are are in the the dental space, and the other half are divided between the executives and retirees uh, and the business owners. Like I said, with a smattering of, of some other clientele uh, as well.
1: So. So tell me a little bit more about this journey or shift of I I think is you just said earlier, like I just I realized that if I focus on just one area like my Coca-Cola executives, it's just so much easier to get clients. And yeah. and just I'm I'm struck by that because I feel like the fundamental challenge and fear that most advisors have is like basically the opposite of if I if I like pick one thing and I narrow it down to one thing I'm going to lose so many opportunities of all the other clients and prospects that I like can't talk to and work with if I if I pick one thing so most I find are very. Very fearful to narrow down and focus in that way, and so I just I'm I'm struck that you, like you came to the opposite conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> right. How did you get to the opposite conclusion?
2: Yeah, and it, and it wasn't without you know testing the waters over over the years. So when I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I really started my career working with with corporate executives, and I liked that space, and I I understood it, and. My personality is: Where did you
1: get started to be able to work with corporate executives out of the gate?
2: So my first job, so right out of college, um, I uh, took a full-time job with the ACO company, which is now owned by Goldman okay. Sachs, and they um, worked with corporate executives. They had these contracts with with a lot of the Fortune 500 companies where uh, the ACO advisors would provide financial counseling services, as well as investment management and, and could sell insurance products uh, for these these corporate executives. So the company would, would essentially pay the bill uh pay the fee for the wealth management services and and the eco advisors serve those clients. So that's really where I cut my teeth in in working with executives. I was 22 years old. So I had no I had no idea what this field was all about, you know. I didn't know what sort of different client issues or strategies were out there. I just I that's how I cut my teeth was on corporate executives.
1: So how did you land in the industry in the first place? I mean, had you always been interested in financial planning, financial advice, and and just ACO was where you decided to make your mark first?
2: No, I stumbled into it. So when I was in college uh, in upstate New York, I was majoring in finance and economics And I think it was my sophomore year in college, I went to the career services offices and I said, You know, I really like math and I really like numbers, but I really like people. Is there something I can do to marry these two? And they said, We've got the perfect person for you to talk with. She's the HR director, that's an alum, HR director for this company called the ACO Company. And ACO's headquarters at the time were in Albany, New York. And I grew up about 45 minutes from there. So as it turned out, I uh, was able to get an internship at ACO during my winter and, and summer breaks from school. And I was interning in HR. Mm-hmm. And I did that th- for all of my breaks uh, through the end of my junior year. And before I went back for my senior year in college, they said, you know, we, we know you're getting your degree in finance." Uh, you've been interning in HR, we would like to offer you a full-time position when you graduate, you can choose which path you want to go into. You can go into our financial planner training program or we'll we'll make a role for you in HR. And the reason I chose the financial planner training program was because as part of that, once you completed the training, you would get relocated to one of their 12 regional offices around the country. And I had never lived outside of upstate New York. So I said, this sounds great. So I I signed on for that role, which was a really sweet position to be in going back your senior year in college and already having a job lined up. Um, but I, I started in their training program. It was a for the, fin- for
1: the for the sole reason of if you took the HR job, you'd have to stay near Albany, and if yeah. you took the financial planning job, they let you go somewhere else.
2: That's exactly right. So I was 22 Fantastic. years old. I was young. I was single. I was ready to go explore the world, um, and so uh, went through the training program. I was I was only a couple months into it, and they called and said, "Hey." Um, We've got an opening in our Atlanta, Georgia office. Are you interested? And I said, of course I am. Let's go. So that's what brought me to Atlanta in 1999. At the time, I thought I'd only hang out in Atlanta for a couple years and then move back back north where all my family was. But uh, 23 years later, I'm still here.
1: So so you get this opportunity out of the gate, right? It's the interesting thing for the ACO model per the earlier discussion. You know, they, they've got a system that brings in clients, that brings in executives under contract with, with the companies. The, you know, the job is, quote unquote, just to give them wonderful financial planning advice so that they feel well reserved and retained with ACO and the contract. So, uh, so what was that like for you? Like suddenly needing to do advisory work for Fortune 500 executives as a 22 year old?
2: So it was great and it was horrible at the same time. So great in that you know here I am at at 22 and I'm I'm still learning. You know I'm still learning a lot of technical you know rules and and all that. Uh, but I remember this CEO of this company and I think he was in his 60s. Uh, Harold was his name. He called me up one day and was asking me a couple questions, financial planning related, and I answered them. And he thanked me for my time, and you know, hung up. And I, I, remember thinking, you know, I'm as young as this guy's grandchildren, and he just listened to me, and took my advice, and thanked me for my time. And and so, you know, I've had this. Most of us have imposter syndrome at some uh-huh. point in our careers, right? So that was the first aha moment that I had where I realized, you know. Yes, I'm young, but I know more about this particular area than those really successful, seasoned executives do. So that mm. was a huge confidence boost for me. But where it was horrible um, being in this business was again, I was I was learning, and and there was so much to know. This is a complex field, and I remember doing, you know, trying to put together these these balance sheets and cash flow statements and deferred compensation analysis um, for for clients and the advisor that I was working under, she she had this red pen and she would just mark up my work like to no end. It was almost like getting an F on a paper in school, you know, and I felt like I was the dumbest person ever. I mean, I graduated the top of my high school class, the top of my college class, and here in my first job thinking, what am I doing? This is awful. I'm never going to make it. You know, so so I had these like this really big conflict that I was dealing with very early in my career. Um, I, I just happened to be working for somebody who was expected me to know it all and so i'm like well i either need to figure this out and and learn who i can ask for help or i'm i'm just going to drown in this industry so it was right around that time that i decided to uh, go to school uh, part time at night and get my MBA degree. As so I remember thinking, well, if this financial planner thing doesn't work out, you know, I, I know I want to do something in business, so I'll get this MBA, and that'll be kind of be my backstop.
1: So the MBA wasn't necessarily a I want to get this to advance my financial planning career. It was I want to get this in case my finan- this financial <laughs> yes. planning thing doesn't work out. Like this will be you know, my this will be my fallback door opener.
2: It was it was Plan B, <laughs> and okay. and a pretty and,
1: intense plan B.
2: Well, you know, right. Coincidentally, I entered the MBA program. This was at Georgia State University here in Atlanta. I entered this program and the very first semester that I'm enrolled, they came out with a master's in financial planning degree. And this master's in financial planning provided the same coursework you needed to be able to sit for the CFP exam. Hmm. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. So I I stayed in the MBA program. I majored in financial planning again. So I got the coursework that I needed to sit for the CFP. Um, So then I'm like, well, I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone here.
1: So at that point, does it feel like you're in some cosmic fate? Like apparently the world's (laughs) pointing me back towards financial planning.
2: You know, I've I've had a couple of those instances in my career where I – it took a step back and thought, "This, this is happening for a reason." Um, I think, you know, looking back at that, that that happened for that reason that kept me in the field, and I'm thankful that that I had that experience because I've I've been very happy in this in this field. Um, so I, you know, I had to I had to grind it out, you know, those first couple years, and I f- eventually found found my way and found my confidence. Uh, but but it was hard. It was hard starting out.
1: So to so two questions, then one, like I guess I'm just wondering. was the MBA actually useful now that you decided to stay in financial planning, I mean, besides the financial planning classes you took? Like just was did the MBA prove to be a useful degree for you in uh, in financial planning?
2: Not at all, no <laughs> I, I I don't think I've used any of the knowledge that I gained twenty plus years ago from my MBA in my financial planning career. I'm not sure that it has helped from a business development standpoint either. It's not even really something that i I market much. You know, I mean, we you know, showcase the credentials the CFP and the SEMA and whatnot. but, uh, I, I rarely have ever had a conversation with anybody where the fact that I have my MBA has come up.
1: And and so then, where did the confidence ultimately come from for you in those early years?
2: It was doing a lot of work. You know, it was it was working a lot of hours and and trying to teach myself a, a lot of things and figuring out why I was get, getting wrong the things I was getting wrong. Eventually, the red pen marks on the work I was doing started to get less and less. So that really helped build my confidence. Um, and, uh, you know, just, um, just having some more experience under my belt at ACO, we prepare tax returns for clients. And as much as I know people hate and CPAs hate having tax season, that was one of the best experiences I could have had early in my career because I learned tax Mm -hmm. and, In in our business and financial planning, taxes impact almost every single area of a client's life. So knowing taxes early in my career was one of the things that gave me that big confidence boost. And I got to a point during tax season where... I all of my tax returns were done, finished, signed, sealed, delivered, and off to the IRS at least a week before April fifteenth. Where you know I saw a lot of other people just you know grinding it out and stressing yeah, be out. be careful. And, yeah, someone
1: someone higher up sees that. It's like you know what's happening next year. Lisa's getting more tax returns. To do. Well,
2: and, and you know maybe, maybe that happened, but but I'll tell you, I I continue <laughs> to to finish those early. That gave me a lot of confidence, seeing that I produced, you know, quality work at a faster pace than some of my other colleagues who, you know, maybe were younger, a few years older. So um, that, you know, kind of putting, setting myself, uh, you know, above some colleagues and and putting in the work to do that, I, you know, I think really, really helped me along.
1: So obviously you're not, you're not still at ACO. So what, what came next?
2: Yeah. So, one of the things that I noticed at Aco uh, that I I said, you know, I don't want this lifestyle for my career. The Aco advisors were on airplanes like three out of the four weeks a month traveling to see clients, and a lot of them were miserable. And and I watched, you know, the woman I was working for. She had a daughter, and and I remember her sitting in her daughter's piano recital. And then she called me because she wanted to talk about an upcoming client meeting. She had to go jump on a plane for, you know, the next morning. And I could hear the daughter's piano playing in the background. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. Like she is, she is taking time away from her child, her only Mm. child, you know, to focus on work. And so between, you know, that experience, which, which you can tell, you know, 20 plus years later still has impacted me. Um, and, and seeing that kind of, you know, being gone all the time and how much stress being on an airplane all the time was for these advisors, I knew I didn't want that. So I left um, and I uh, took a role with a smaller uh, wealth management firm uh, in the Atlanta area that did financial planning and investments, also sold insurance. So I learned about selling insurance um, at at this next firm um, and that was an interesting uh, learning experience for me, again, pretty early in my career. So I stayed there for a couple of years at the smaller firm. And then I pivoted to um, a large bank in Atlanta. They were looking for someone to start their financial planning uh, division. So basically, help support the brokers that were working in in the branch offices at this bank around town, doing financial planning for their clients. Um, so they brought me on board to to do the financial to train the the brokers why financial planning was important, and then to do the financial plans for clients. Uh, which I loved. I I covered, you know, all over metro Atlanta, worked with a lot of different people. But along the way, the bank figured out that I knew something about insurance. (laughs) And so they asked me to also be one of their insurance specialists. So I was kind of doing a a dual role there of of selling insurance as well as um, providing the financial planning. So I went from You know, smaller company in Atlanta, smaller wealth management firm in Atlanta, to this this big bank, and that was an interesting experience, just in terms of getting getting exposure to how politics works at large companies.
1: Well, but take me back for a moment, just like how did you get from ACO to the the small firm initially? I mean, just like why why did you pick them? What was the role?
2: Yeah, so I met the CEO of this the smaller wealth management firm through my Georgia State program, he, he, as I think about this now, I think he, he taught one of my classes. Um, And so that's, that's how I got to know David. And um, he, uh, you know, we, we just would talk after class and and got to know one another. And I think he approached me one night after class with this job uh, opportunity as the director of financial planning at their firm. And uh, again, knowing that I, I didn't want to stay at ACO long-term, I was really fearful of that lifestyle uh, is is why I left and, and took the role um, as a director of financial planning.
1: Interesting, and so and so, what was that? What was that role? Because you know, there's a lot of folks that have director of financial planning kinds of titles now, but not very many. Twenty years ago, that was yeah, pretty rare.
2: It was. So I was I was developing the financial plans for the firm's clients. Uh, and uh, combination, they worked with executives and, and business owners and retirees, you know, divorcees, a pretty, pretty wide variety of clients. Um, NavaPlan was the software that, that uh, we were using back then. So I had to become and, and did become the expert in, in Plan. That's, you know, a very heavy cash flow uh, based software um, so I was, uh, you know, I was doing all the planning, and I had an opportunity to dabble a little bit in the financial advisor role. There of, you know, that was a very heavy, you know, bring in business and and serve the client almost almost like an eat what you kill um, environment at at that time. Uh, but uh, that was intriguing to me. That was probably the first time in my career that I looked at business development and I thought, huh, I think I can do that. Um, but I was still in my twenties, you know, so that's a scary thing to, to do is figure out, well, you know, millionaires aren't, don't look like me. So how am I going to find those millionaires and get them to, to like me and trust me and want to do business with me? Um, but I had a lot of other advisors there that, that, you know, I could watch and learn from and, and learn the ropes from, um, so I, I was doing a dual role for a while there of the director of financial planning, as well as trying to to bring in some clients and do some business development.
1: And and so, how did the business development side go at that point? Because I'm recognizing, like, you're coming off of ACO where you know the the mothership <laughs> provides yeah. all and serves up these. Very affluent, complex uh, corporate executives to you. So, what did business development look like when suddenly you had to try start doing it on your own after you're a couple of years in your career?
2: Yeah, so I remember joining uh, a BNI networking group, uh, and that was a way to to start making connections. I would, I was going to networking breakfasts and dinners. Uh, you know, just just really trying to be out of the office as much as possible and and meet people. Now, so for
1: for those who aren't familiar, can you explain just BNI as an yeah. organization? Because I know they're still around today.
2: Yeah, I believe it stands for Business Networking International. So, this is an organization where there's there's small groups of professionals that form and get together on a regular basis, and the idea is to share to share leads. Um, and to, re- to share referrals back and forth. So there was like, um, in my group, I was the financial advisor. There was a real estate agent. I think there was a CPA. There was a lawyer. There was a property and casualty insurance agent. And, and um, you know, probably a, a few other small business specialties. And, you know, again, the idea is that there's this, this small group where you're connected, you meet regularly, and, and you're all responsible for helping one another grow your businesses and hopefully pass referrals back and forth. Um, I I did well in that group. I I was able to make good relationships with um, the individuals in that group. I also, you know, realized too, I had a a lens for quality, right? So I started to realize that. Um, who you refer a client to is a reflection of you. And so you need to be careful about these referrals you're making, because if it doesn't work out, it can look, look bad on you. Um, so BNI provided me just some really good experiences early in my career to figure out how in the world do you attract people to you? And how does this referral relation, why is the referral relationship so important? Um and, and and it also taught me about building your personal brand, which has been a huge area that I've 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 worked diligently on over the last, you know, five, ten years.
1: So what ultimately took you away from the firm to decide to go to the bank?
2: You know, I think one of my my biggest weaknesses, Michael, uh and I've I've said this in interviews, is I'm impatient.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I probably, you know, at the time was thought I should be having more success than I was. And, and I left. Uh, I actually had this conversation with, with the uh, now retired CEO of that firm a couple weeks ago, we, we had lunch and, you know, he shared with me, Lisa, one, one of my, one of my biggest regrets is letting you go. And I said, That was a mistake um, on my part, but I was young and I was immature Uh and I thought I knew everything and, and I didn't. So, you know, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have left. I think I would have been very successful there. Um, you know, twenty years later, I was still still in touch with the CEO and and love that relationship. But so, what I, pulled
1: you away then? Like you wanted m- like more opportunity than you were giving you, and was like, I, if you won't move me up, I'm going to go find something else that you know, will let me it, move It wasn't
2: up. that I wanted uh, access to more clients to build my book of business without having to do it all myself. And so the okay. bank, the bank, so, the bank so you were living enough.
1: You were living enough business development of like this is interesting. And and also, kind of sucks. Like, yes.
2: <laughs> so
1: <laughs> and it's hard. Oh, did ACO where they give it all to me? Yeah. Did the thing? Did the puree? What you kill? Yep. And so the bank, I guess, was kind of the mid. Point of like, exactly. I need to do some development, but there is a base of clients that are coming through the bank or have a relationship to the bank. So this will yes. this will be my like business development midpoint.
2: Yes, and I I was right in my hunch that that was going to be a midpoint. So I get to the bank and I took more more of an in, you know internal role at first of as I mentioned you know, doing the financial plans and supporting the brokers. But eventually, I had to I had to sell the plans. You know, so there there was some business development there. It was more selling internally to the brokers. Initially, and then helping to close the the client um, business, uh, but but I saw you know these these people would walk into the the branches, and just because of the name on the door. <laughs> They, they just trusted the the people that they were going to sit down with. And I'm like, this is amazing to me. Like you just, you have people walk in and they already want to do business with you simply because of the brand of the company that you're, you're associated with. So that was another really interesting business um, experience that I had. So like that was a combination of you still need to go out and get your name out there and find clients, but people still walk through the door. And if you were sitting at a bank branch changes are once or twice a day somebody's going to sit in front of you that you you had you there was nothing you needed to do to attract them into the door other than the fact that you were sitting in that branch and they opened the door and they decided they wanted to talk about you know whatever financial related
1: Okay. So, and so I guess in that context, like very similar in many ways to the prior firm, that part of your role is leading financial planning where you're supporting the others on financial planning, building plans for clients centrally, and then also doing some work building a client base. Just now you're in an environment that's a little bit less like go hunt it from scratch. Yeah. There's at least a, uh, a little bit of a natural flow because of the the banking relationship and just having bank branches that people walk into that, at that, least back back yeah. then when they walked, then, yeah. when they walked into bank branches. So what led you ultimately to say like all right, but I still got to leave the bank and find another thing. Like what what led to that shift?
2: So this is one of those experiences I mentioned there's been a few times in my career where I'm like this is divine intervention or something like the world is speaking to me. So I was at the bank. I was doing really well. Uh, I I was making really good money. Had found my footing. Life was good. Life was easy. I was not looking to leave. And one night I went to a Georgia State alumni event. Again, that's where where I got my MBA and my my financial planning coursework. And. The gentleman who was speaking at that networking event, uh, his name was Dave Polstra, and and at the time, so he was he was one of the co-founders of Brightworth, and he was he was really impressive speaker. And uh, I also met a number of other associates at at Brightworth uh, at the time who who were at this networking event and came to support Dave. And I'm like, wow, these are these are really nice and smart people. The very next morning. After this networking event, in my email inbox of the bank I was working for shows up a job posting for Brightworth mm. for the manager of financial planning position. And I'm like, this is so weird. I just met all these people last night, you know, never heard of the company, just met all these people last night, really liked them. And in my email inbox comes this job posting.
1: So, so like that- were you like subscribed to something for job postings or like <laughs> did they target you coming off the meeting?
2: So I think what happened was they had sent this job posting to Georgia State who then pu- blasted it out the next morning to all of their financial planning program alumni. Okay. Yeah. and So
1: well, so then very appropriate. Like they <laughs> did the speech at Georgia State and then Georgia State blasted out the opening the next yeah. morning and it clicked for someone.
2: It, it did. And I, I don't think to that point I had seen any other job postings from Georgia State <laughs> come into my inbox. And so it, it just it was just a, an interesting experience. So I thought, you know what? I need to pursue this. This is just too weird. I need to pursue this. Um, and so I did pursue it. And, uh, and that was in 2005. I was hired the summer of 2005. Uh, and I remember during that interview process, you know, I was asked, what is your weakness? And I said, I'm impatient. And, um, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, I, 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 I haven't gotten bored <laughs> here over, over, you know, the 17 years that, that I've been here, but um, it's, it's, it's been a, a really incredible journey.
1: So so you took the role with Brightworth into manager of financial planning. So, so I guess similar now to the roles at both of the preceding two jobs, like that sounds very central financial planning support as you had at the bank and as you had at the small advisory firm.
2: Right, right. So it felt it felt comfortable to me. I was confident that I could do it. Um, And I was, you know, it was, it was definitely an internal role. So I was responsible for training the younger planners doing the technical training, reviewing their work, um, serving as the financial planner on client relationships where I supported uh, some of the advisors here. And, and so I got to a point in my career, I guess this is about five, six years in where I felt comfortable in my, my abilities. And, um, and I, I knew I could do a good job in that role, um, and as as the role evolved, I started the partners, I think, you know, th- thought that I was doing a pretty good job serving their clients and they were able to have their time freed up to go do more business development when they had somebody who was kind of running the show day to day for their clients. And the clients seemed to be pretty comfortable with me. Um, and so, so eventually I started working with more and more clients and more and more clients and, and uh, started enjoying that. And so uh, I think it was early 2008, I had a conversation with with the partners here about moving into the wealth advisor role. Um, So moving out of the internal role and and more of the advisor, you know, external facing role. And um, we, uh, we decided that that would make sense. However, I was pregnant with twins uh, at the time, my first children. And so the decision was, let's wait till I get back from attorney leave and then full-time roll into the wealth advisor role so that I didn't you know start serving serving clients full time and trying to bring in business and then go out for 3 months on attorney leave.
1: So take me back though just one more moment like why did you leave the bank job for the Brightworth job? It, if it was like nominally the same title and more or less the same duties, like develop plans, train younger planners, serve some clients. Uh, uh, of the firm as well, which sounds like is, is very similar to all the prior roles. So you, you had that. Why did you change?
2: So I actually left the bank and made less money in my first role here. And I'll, I'll come back to that for a minute. So it wasn't for money. Um, At the bank, what I had realized and experienced was those who got promoted to management roles, VP, whatnot, they were really, really good at sales. They were not technically competent and were not good managers of people, but they were really good at selling. And so I, I did not have a lot of respect for my manager. And I didn't feel like I was learning and growing the way mm. that I wanted to.
1: Um, because and, because you wanted to grow more in the technical end and the managing end, and that was literally not the people who are managing. The people who were managing were good at sales.
2: That's exactly right. And so when I met and went through the interview process here at Brightworth, I saw a difference. I saw that the leadership, was, they were technically competent. That was the first thing that struck me. They were very, very smart, very technically competent. Um, They, they seem to, you know, have, have a lot of desire to, to groom people, to invest in people. It was a smaller team. I think there was only 15 associates at the company when I joined. Um, So it was, you know, a a tight knit group. People seemed happy. Mm -hmm. And also one of my uh, friends from, from business school started working here. A uh, couple years before I got here, so mm-hmm. she was influential in me talking with her and asking how your experience has been um, to, to get a sense of what it was like. So I looked at Brightworth as a place that I thought I could grow and I could learn from other smart people, and I, I wanted to. I was craving that after not really having it for a couple years at the bank. Um, so for those reasons, that's that's why I left and came here. Now I mentioned that I, I came here for less money.
1: Um, Can I ask like how, how much of a step back did you take?
2: Uh, so it was, it was about $10,000, which when you're in your late twenties at that sort of compensation range, that's a pretty sizable number. Yeah. Um, but what I did as part of my interview process is I, I, uh, negotiated with Evan, said if you know if, if I can accomplish these these three objectives, and quite frankly, I don't remember exactly what those three objectives were, but we discussed them and agreed. If I can accomplish these three within six months at the start of the next calendar year, can we you know discuss bumping my my salary up to you know, what it was when I left the bank? And we agreed on that. I accomplished those three objectives, and they gave me the raise. So um, I think. I'd like to share that story. I think it's a really good um, business lesson for especially younger people to hear that, you know, put some skin in the game and roll your sleeves up and and do what you need to do. So So find the opportunity.
1: How did that conversation come about? Because that's a really interesting framing. I mean, was that a like you said I want to get back to where I was when I left the bank? And they said, well, if you do these things, these three things, then then we'll give you the raise. Or did you come to them and say, like, you tell like you give me three things I gotta to do to get back to my old salary? You tell me what they are, and I'm gonna go do them. Like Actually, where, did, where I came, did it initiate from?
2: I came up with those three things. So after oh. <laughs> he, he, hearing what they, you know, what they were looking for and and opportunities and where how they wanted to grow. I came up with those three things. Oh, and I said if I can accomplish these three things for you in 6 months, can we adjust my compensation? And they said yes. And maybe on on their part they thought, well, this is there's no risk here, right? So if she doesn't well, do that's it, the, that's eh.
1: the thing. I mean, if they're actually good useful things for the business right. that moves the business forward, it actually gets pretty easy from the business owners like right. That would only happen if the business was actually bigger by more than enough to pay you the additional right. salary. So right. like that's an easy yes as a business yeah. owner. If yeah. you pick if you pick good good things that tie right. to the right. success of the business.
2: Right. Right. So um I think that again, that's a story I like to share with from a mentoring standpoint with, with younger professionals, um, because it's, it's, don't think that the offer you're being given is the final offer. Right. And I, I had to, I had to have some strength inside of me to come to back to them and, and negotiate. Um, I, I, that's, that's typically a weakness of a lot of women. I was, you know, in my late twenties at the time and a female and, and uh, I'm so glad that I you know, had that confidence to do it, but, but it, it took some guts.
1: <laughs> so, so you do this for three years. You're supporting the partners, the founders more on their clients. You decide that you want to make that your main thing as you're heading into 2008. When you were talking about that shift, was that a, y'all are just giving me so many clients, I need to let go of this manager or planning thing just to be able to fully focus on these clients? because of a a client load dynamic or was this uh like no i actually want to start building my client base and that like business development was going to come in as a part of the the transition to wealth advisor in 2008
2: yeah it was the latter so i i started seeing you know more and more clients calling me directly for things and building relationships personal relationships with these clients and it got to the point where there was probably 20 or 25 clients that I was serving for the firm where I really was running point. Um, I really was acting as the advisor. And so we we knew, uh, working with the partners, that it would make sense for me to really take this handful of relationships over. So kind of that was part of it. We already know we could seed me with, with a book that I could then start to, to build. But I also realized that you know not only did I like serving the client's I was good at it and I started, I was starting to get some referrals. Uh, so, Jeez. so with that, you know, the business development starting to happen, I, I think it just, it was, it was a really obvious shift that needed to happen. Um, I was excited about it. I was, I was, you know, energized to, I always like trying new things. This was going to be something new and, um, you know, and, and away I went.
1: And so, as I'm struck just in context now, so you're you're almost ten years into your career at this point, yes, before making this sort of full transition into in wealth advisor, yes, which is is interesting to me again, like particularly at the time, that was a very unusual career path i mean most like most would have would have been put into a role where they started in in sales and getting clients, and just you had to do that to survive.
2: Yeah. And, you know, when you're young and in this business, sales is scary uh, and it's, it's intimidating. And so you've got this, you know, you've got a, a confidence weakness <laughs> issue. You know, most, most people are, are a little shaky if, if they don't yeah. think they know what they're doing and, and you don't want to, you know, come off as, you know, as an imposter here. Um, and, and, and so it's scary and you don't, you don't know how to start You don't know where to start. And so I I think, and I've told, told individuals over the years, younger individuals, I said, you know, I think getting your start at a bank makes a lot of sense because it's a safe, Mm -hmm. safer environment to start and to learn. But you also get exposed to business development early on, but it's not Mm -hmm. an eat what you kill um, environment. Uh, the other the other key moment for me in, in making the shift to the advisor position uh, and this was this was officially happened in early '9 but in in 2008 uh, the co-founder uh, who I saw i saw speak at the alumni event Dave Polstra he brought me in to start doing the retirement planning workshops at coca-cola with him so he had been doing these retirement planning workshops for about, you know, at that point, maybe 15, 20 years or so. And, and he, he brought me in to do them with him. And he, this was such a pivotal moment in my career. So he provided me this platform to take the ball and run with it and go shine. And so I started co-presenting with him these retirement planning workshops. I, I had to dive in and learn all of Coke's comp and benefit plans inside and out. So I could stand up on that stage and, and talk intelligently about taxes and financial planning and how that impacts yeah. their 401k and pension and all that. And eventually got to a point where he handed the whole uh, seminar uh, mm-hmm. series over to me and I was, I was running it solo for the company. Um, and that's when I started to really build my niche at Coca-Cola.
1: So, folks, well, I was going to ask just this this transition where you're going in a wealth advisor, there's going to be more business development expectations. You, you did the bank thing where they come to you. You did the B&I thing. You had some clients coming in by referrals, although usually that's, you know. It's nice when they come in, but early on, like you literally don't have enough clients in total for referral only to like create the volume that's necessary. Usually, you have to do some other some other kind of business development as well. And so, I I was I was going to ask this overall, like as you're staring down this transition to what in a wealth advisor, like what was your strategy going to be around doing business development, or were you still formulating it as you're like looking at the transition 2008?
2: I was still formulating it. I knew that I, if I continue to do a good job serving the small book of clients that I was seated with, that I had been serving as the planner for several years, that I could get referrals um, because I was getting referrals from, from those, those clients. Um, I also joined different local organizations, the Atlanta Estate Planning Councils, great uh, organization for networking with other CPAs and estate lawyers in town, trust officers, Uh, So I was getting involved in professional networking organizations uh, and attending networking events. So getting myself out in the community, um, being present. I also was doing a decent amount of writing uh, articles. I was writing articles for our our company newsletter that went out to, to thousands Uh, So I was getting my name associated with certain technical topics that I I would write on uh, and eventually started getting some exposure with uh, sending content to local newspapers uh, and getting my name in the Atlanta Business Chronicle, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and and some other local uh, media publications. So it was kind of a combination of getting myself out in the community and leveraging content in the media, to uh, you know, to start building my my personal brand. In addition to trying to serve the heck out of out of existing clients and keep them happy, so they'll tell their friends. And in addition to the speaking seminars at Coca Cola, I also leveraged that to speak at really any other industry organizations that I could could get my foot in the door. So I really started. I realized I loved public speaking and. And I, you know, people listened uh, and, Mm. and I was finding, I was looking for other opportunities to put myself on a stage because I felt confident in my ability to present well in that format. Uh, So that probably was a fifth pillar.
1: Okay. So as you look at these sort of four slash five different paths for business development that you, you started investing yourself into with this transition, like which, which ones worked and which ones didn't work?
2: so the coca-cola workshops absolutely home run slam dunk um the the content it it important it just takes consistency and it takes time uh, the speaking, I would say, the same thing. It takes consistency and it takes time. So you have to, you know. I think if you're expecting to do one of these and 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 have it turn into this huge book of business overnight, you're wrong. It's it's time and time in the game here. You know, Dave Dave Polstra used this phrase that I you know have repeated so many times. He said, half the battle is just showing up. And what he meant by that is show up consistently to the same networking groups, you know, write consistently for the same publication, speak consistently to the same audiences. And that's how people will start to realize that you have some knowledge. You are a, you know, you're going to be here for the long term, and you're established in the industry.
1: So then what, what was your like consistency cadence and how, how long did it take? I mean, you said it's slow, but like, how, how long did it take before it started becoming fruitful and meaningful?
2: Yeah. So let me start with the Coca-Cola workshop. So I started doing those in, in 2008, uh, brought in a client, I think the first workshop that I did. So <laughs> there was some immediate results there. Um, and in 2012, we no longer had the opportunity to do the workshops at Coca-Cola because coincidentally, my first employer, the ACO company. Uh, formed a a partnership with Coca Cola and they were doing the workshops, but that really didn't didn't scare me. You know, I didn't think my business development funnel was was all of a sudden going to be choked off uh, because I had I had brought on you know enough clients from doing these workshops at Coca Cola where I you know I had a decent base to work off of and. Uh, what ended up happening was around that time, probably 2012, 2013, because I had built up a, a decent client base at Coca-Cola. I was, and their office is about 15 minutes from ours here in Atlanta, their headquarters. So I was going to Coca-Cola's office to meet with my clients and, 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 you know, have their financial update meeting. And as I was with them, they would introduce me to one of their clients. Colleagues that was in the office next door, and and then you know next thing you know I'd be introduced to another colleague, and so I, by being present in their offices, I started to establish uh, much more you know brand recognition.
1: And so just just literally by by being physically present, I'm already working with these clients their offices are right up the street. I want to work with more of the Coca-Cola employees, so like I'm not going to make all of them come to come to our Brightworth offices. Right. I'm going to do some meetings there so that I literally get seen and can get organically introduced to others while I'm there.
2: Right. And that's things took off Michael like I had never thought they would as a result of that and I realized, you know, I knew my client. I know this corporate executive client really well. They are busy. They do not have the time or desire to pay attention to their finances and, and they value being able to delegate that to somebody. And so, so because that's, that's what I would do for people and I knew that's what they wanted. That's one of the big reasons I went to them. You know, I'm going to make this easy for them to work with me. I'm not going to take a lot of their time. And but that ended up snowballing into more business than I, I imagined, could have imagined would have come. I'll tell you a, a, a quick, funny story. In 2016, I uh, found myself spending more time at Coke's office than than Brightworth's office. And I actually gave up my office here to, to uh, a new hire because I just was, was never here in in Brightworth's office. I was at Coke all the time. Now, every time I went to Coke, I had to be, somebody had to sign me, uh, register me as their visitor. Okay. So if I was going to see, you know, one client, they would register me in the system as a visitor. I would go to check in at the security desk, get my visitors sticker and, and on I went. Well, in the summer of 2016, I mean, I was there pretty much every day. Like I said, summer of 2016, I go to go to security desk, and they said, "Ma'am, we can't not let you in." I said, "What do you mean I can't get in? I was here yesterday." And so and so registered me, and they said, "You have exceeded the number of times that you can come in as a visitor. We have to get you registered as a contractor for Coca-Cola." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Okay, what do I need to do to be a contractor?" And so I had to fill out a background check and they had to check to see if I was on the national sex offenders list and I had to have one of my clients sponsor me basically saying if I misbehaved at the office you know that that this person was responsible for for me um but I I got my contractor badge and I got a a parking deck pass. So here I go into the. That's employee- nice.
1: You literally have a parking pass at, at the Coke offices.
2: I do. So I went in with my, I parked in the employee parking deck. Every day, and I swiped in with my my badge. Nobody need to register me anymore. I just swipe myself in and out, and I would just go and work there. And I would position myself uh, in strategic places so I could be seen. In but and I would still schedule meetings with clients. But if I was in between meetings, you know, I would sit in this certain coffee shop in this certain area. It's kind of the same spot, and oh, because this think- is see people this walking up like down the mega, hall. This uh, is
1: like mega Coke headquarters. Yes, this Just, is mega I mean,
2: Coke headquarters.
1: I'm envisioning yes. like a traditional office and it's like, you know, business office space, like, are you sitting in their lobby? Like, where do you sit exactly? But I guess like yeah. mega corporate headquarters, yeah. so big hallways, dining areas, coffee right. shops, like all the things you have in a, right. in, a in a mega facility. So there's, there's plenty of reasonable places to be just sitting and hanging
2: out. Right. And the best place, Michael, was the salad bar line. <laughs> I would take my time going through the salad bar line at lunch because you met everybody in the salad bar line and talk to everybody. So you know, being where they are, being seen. I mean, I, I, had, I had at that point in my career, the entire floor of, of clients in two different departments, those entire floors, I served all those executives. And so one, one floor started nicknaming me the money lady. Here comes the money lady. Um, and it, it was, so when I said it's easy, if you can develop a specialty with a group of people or a certain practice area, life was easy. I mean, clients were taking me around, introducing me to prospects, and I was there. I had credibility already. So I picked up so many clients in such a short amount of time. And because I knew how all their plans worked so well, I could rattle this stuff off quickly, easily, and provided a ton of value for these clients, and and they recognized that.
1: Interesting. And, and so, just there comes a point where you're so immersed in it. And I, I guess like the, the asterisk that goes along with this is, is just Coke's a really big company. So, you know, you, there's, there's still a pretty big pond for you to fish in, as, as it were. And they're just literally all gathered in one place at, at corporate HQ. So, like, there's a critical mass of people, and it's really straightforward to go and be seen because you just literally go to headquarters and be seen
2: right right now obviously covid made that strategy ineffective right all these offices were shut mm. down um, yeah. you couldn't go in and so in, in coke's example you know they were very slow to to come back to the office and there's like a lot of companies they are struggling to get people back um, so i was having having this conversation with a colleague a couple of weeks ago and i said you know that worked really well covid put a wrinkle into this but i think the day is going to come again where you know we can go into these corporate offices again on a more more regular basis
1: so has that changed what you like what you do to uh, uh, like to to market into into coke and these organizations when just you you're generating all this business from being physically present for years and years and years and then suddenly you can't be physically present anymore
2: Yeah. So prior to COVID happening, we had started to embark on the strategy to, as I mentioned earlier, go find our next Coca-Cola. This is the other thing I wanted to mention that was very, very successful. And this is what we're working to replicate to infiltrate other organizations. We wrote these two white papers. One was called Preparing for Your Retirement from the Coca-Cola Company. And I believe we launched our first version of that in 2012 or 2013.
1: Preparing so, to retire from the Coca-Cola Company. Yes. So, so this, like, this, this, this is, is very straightforward. Like we're we're, yeah. we're not coming up with like the witty creative title here. Like this yeah. this is exactly what it is. This exactly. is what we're here to do.
2: So this is about a 10 page white paper and it boiled down... Very succinctly, if you retire at this age with this number of years of service, here's what happens to your stock options, here's what happens to your deferred compensation plan. Here's what you need to be thinking about in regards to your pension option, annuity versus lump sum. You know, here's here's how what happens to the non-qualified 401k plan when you leave. So you know, we, we took the major questions that we had been getting from our co-clients over the years and said, everyone's asking us this, everyone. And we put it in a white paper and we use this white paper as a marketing piece. And so this, this paper would, would spread around, you know, our clients would spread it to their colleagues. So if they heard about somebody retiring, they'd be like, Hey, my, my financial planner, They've got this, this paper that talks about preparing for your retirement, send along a copy. It's also on our website. So that was, that was a really cool piece uh, and it showed our specialization and differentiation hmm. at Coca-Cola.
1: Right, because any financial planner can say, like, I do customized individualized financial planning. I mean, you give me a client with all the Coke benefits, like, I can, I can read it. I can do the research. I can, like, I can figure it out. I can give them advice. But you're showing up with this white paper that just says out of the gate, like we know you, we serve you. We're going to know the answers for your stuff out of the gate because we've got this established specialization. We literally wrote the paper on it.
2: We literally wrote the paper. Now, with a lot of these large companies, they have all different vendors for different benefit plans. So one company might manage the 401k. Another one might house a deferred comp plan. Another one might house their stock option plan. Right. And so to go get the summary plan descriptions for all, how all this stuff works, you know, clients were having to go remember logins to this website and password to that website. And it just, and and, and the intranet just, um, it, it, it just took a couple, you know, several different clicks to find the information they needed. That was the other thing. I I had spent so much time working with clients on helping them rebalance their 401k plans or finding the summary plan description for the deferred comp plan. I knew exactly how to navigate their intranet. And so they would that was a huge value add of sitting at their office and helping them rebalance their 401k plan together because I knew what buttons to click. They would literally sit there and have me click the buttons while they sat next to me. <laughs> So it it just, it just, you know, that specialty went really deep, but so, so we wrote the retirement white paper. That was a success. And we continue to update this, this paper. So this has been going on for 10 years now, but the paper that really, really took off and was another pivotal point, not only in, in, in my business development, but for the company, 2015 Coke had a big uh, layoff and we got wind of this because of all of our contacts there. We got wind of this a month or two early. Coke produced a 140 page uh, booklet on if you receive the severance package here's here's what you need to know it was 140 pages we boiled it down to 10 and we wrote a paper called receiving a severance package from the coca-cola company <laughs> and this thing spread like crazy and our phone was ringing off the hook. And so, mm-hmm. and and that was a year that I was there all the time. So, right. you know, I mean, with severance, it's stressful. Right. It's scary. Money's in motion. There's big tax implications. You know, people are, are, are they go through a, this whole range of emotions. First, they're mad and then they're scared. And, you know, um, and then eventually they're thrilled, <laughs> um, yep. and so so. But, but but we knew how to process people out of that company, and we knew how all the severance stuff worked. And so again, at a time when people are facing this major life trans dr- transition, a major life decision. To have this group of experts that's been there, done that, knows how it works, and can t- boil it down for them, and you know, run their numbers, run their and how it's going to impact their financial plan, it was huge value for people. And so we we you know we got a, a lot of clients through that.
1: Well, and I'm I'm struck by that, frankly, just in the in the transition into the current environment where you know ma- markets have been bumpy, not. A lot of clarity about what's gonna happen as the Fed raises rates and how that may impact the economy in the coming year, but you know, a lot of concern that either either we've been in a recession or we're tipping in the recession or we're about to hit a recession and just that's when uh you know, layoffs start to hit. And for a lot of advisors, you know, we we tend to do well, frankly, when, when people are employed and growing and, you know, uh, uh, having wealth events. So particularly if you work with executives and folks at startups when they're the options are getting more valuable and the the RSUs are getting more valuable. Valuable and companies are IPOing, like a lot of that activity is really slowed down the economic slowdown. But to me, like you, you highlight that, at least from the advisor end, like there, there's a flip side opportunity for this, which is if layoffs really rise and severances really rise, like there's actually a very material opportunity to make 2023 the year that you're an expert in severance for blank whatever your right. whatever your target clientele is and and that can actually be an additional uh you know clients in motion opportunity in in the coming year in a difficult economic environment
2: that's right and and i i found for you know there was a couple year period especially after this 2015 layoff that I felt like severance was the only thing I was talking to people about. And so not only at Coke, but I, I had written some articles about it, you know, and, and was, was getting phone calls from other people at other companies um, going through this. So, I, uh, you know, I would say maybe a subset of my specialty is is severance planning uh, for people. And and I, I enjoy that because you have the complexity, the financial complexity to it, but you also have the human emotion side of it and helping people through this. You know, I've, I've done it before. I know what to expect. I know what they're going through. And I, I feel like I can do a pretty good job in helping them um, land well uh, during, you know, during this transition.
1: So. So is this now kind of become your standard guess, model as you start moving into other companies and and uh, now with the corporate executive offering, like find their big thing, write the white paper on it, start getting known for the white paper and use that as the way to, to start breaking your way into working with executives of that company?
2: That's exactly what we've done. So we now have on our website probably around 10 or so. Um, company-specific white papers. Uh, it's called building your wealth at XYZ Company. So building your wealth at UPS, building your wealth at Google, building your wealth at Microsoft, building your wealth at Salesforce. So we, what we we've done is taken. Companies where we've got pockets of clients, there so they're smaller pockets of clients, but we have all the information on their comp and benefits plans. And we've taken this white paper template; you basically do a save as, and then you pop in the company specific right. nuances. Those have been our our marketing tools. Um, whenever we're, you know, for example, if we come across somebody who knows someone who works at UPS, oh you know, here's this white paper, Building Your Wealth at UPS. I mean, it, it's it's an immediate differentiator. Right. Um, the other thing that we did along with, with trying to differentiate ourselves and we talked about, we literally wrote the paper at Coke. Well, we wrote a book um, for corporate executives. It's called Building Your Wealth Inside Corporate America. And this book was published last year. And Like I had mentioned with, with Coke, where we, we said, we know all the questions we keep getting from everybody. So we're going to write a white paper on it. We took that same philosophy. Here's all the big issues the corporate executives have that we've helped them address over the years, and we put it in a book. And so now, when we meet with with any corporate executive, even if it's not you know a company that that we have other clients at, we walk in with this book. That's our marketing piece. We literally wrote the book on financial planning for corporate executives. And so that's been um, that's been really cool for a number of reasons. One. Um, it, it, we're getting really good feedback on it. You know, it's, it's helping to get our foot in the door. at Other organizations, people are, are sharing this around. Um, we, we, this is a complimentary copy, you know, you can get it through our website or we'll hand it out, you know, at different networking events or whatnot. Um, but also the, uh, so there, there's eight of us total at the company that contributed to writing this book. Uh, for me, this is the third book I've gone through the publishing process on, um, but I've, I've helped encourage uh, my other colleagues, the co-authors, when you introduce yourself to somebody, and this is a business development tip, when you introduce yourself to somebody, instead of saying, I'm a financial advisor, you can say, I'm an author. And a financial expert, and so what's mm. going to happen is you're then going to get a question. The next question is going to be author. That's interesting. What did you write? Well, then you just opened up the opportunity to have a conversation. Uh-huh. So what I've what I've experienced, uh, and and I've I've written mm. two, two other books uh, besides co-authoring this one. I start introducing myself at networking events as an author. Somebody would always ask me a follow-up question. Well, what did you write? What's it about? How was the process of writing a book? I've always wanted to do that. Tell me more. But over the years, when I introduced myself as a financial advisor, guess what happened after that? The conversation they, stopped.
1: So they usually take a step backwards. Yeah. They're look, like, oh, look oh for gosh. someone else they can make eye contact with.
2: Exactly. Like, oh, they're going to sell me something. You know, here it goes. So uh, I w- I was uh, I-, I did a couple years ago I started doing my own um, podcast for, for corporate executives. They're, they're topics uh, that apply to the busy working professional in, in under 30 minutes. So this is again knowing my audience right um, And so I-, I now introduce myself as an author, a podcaster, and a financial expert. And so now I either get the question, what do you write or tell me about your podcast? How do I listen in? So from a business development standpoint, you know, I've learned over the years that finding a way to, to build your brand, to differentiate yourself, and to try to not use those words financial advisor, financial planner, as a leading introduction have been successful for me. And I encourage you know, my colleagues that that worked on this book, Building Your Wealth Inside Corporate America, mm. to introduce themselves at networking events as an author.
1: I love it. I love it. So what surprised you the most about building your career in the advisory business?
2: I think what surprised me is how different every day can be and is, and how you really can create your own path to success. Uh, now, I think a lot of that is I've been aligned with an organization that's that's encouraged. The entrepreneurship and and finding your way and giving you you know providing you resources but letting you spread your wings and and go hit the ground running um, and and develop your own path to success. So that that's been really interesting to me. This has not felt like a, an environment where I've been um, you know trapped or you know don't have enough opportunity or someone's trying to hold me back. Um, Also, being a female in this business has been a huge asset, but also a challenge. Um, So in our business, there's, you know, 10 to 15 percent, maybe, you know, female advisors out there. I know it's a it's a very small percentage and we all know the statistics about more and more females are going to be controlling more and more of the wealth in this in this country and around the world. Um, But the challenge for me, and and this has been disappointing for me, has come where because I'm a female, I have had other male colleagues make the assumption that I want to work with female clients or that if they have a female prospect, that female prospect needs a woman, i.e. me or one of my female colleagues in that meeting. And that's been frustrating to me because I feel like at times the men have pigeonholed me as a woman as to the type of clients that I should be working with or that I want to work with or that the clients want to work with. And I found the opposite. Some of my favorite client relationships are my male corporate executives. And I don't hold myself out there as the advisor for women to work with intentionally. Some of my more challenging client relationships over the years have been working with women. So, so that's been a surprise and and a little bit of a disappointment that I feel like I've, I've tried to, I've had to, a hurdle that I've had to overcome uh, and encourage, you know, younger women to make sure they don't find themselves in that getting pigeonholed if they don't want to be. Now, some women do a great job. They love working with women. It's a great fit for them. They have a great marketing and business development opportunity to hold themselves out there, uh, but I would also never assume that all male clients want to work with another male. And there's studies that have been done that I've read that show gender doesn't actually play a big of a, that big of a role in what advisor a client hires in our industry.
1: So. I guess just help help me reconcile though. Like as you started that discussion, you had kind of framed up like female advisors are a small percentage, even though more and more women control wealth in the U.S. and around the world. So, to admit it. It it sounded like you were going to go down a road of therefore, I like I'm finding an opportunity and working with women, or I'm pursuing an opportunity and working with women. But you're actually just saying like you're you're trying to not be pigeonholed in that way, which I understand. Uh, but then just. I guess help me reconcile. Then, like, is there an opportunity in working with women more directly? Is there an opportunity for pursuing the this segment that, as you noted, are controlling more wealth in the U.S. and around the world? Like, help help me help me connect those dots.
2: Sure. So, I think being as a female, you're a minority in the wealth management business. So it provides you more opportunity in terms of if there are clients that want to work with females and you want to work with with women clients, there's you don't have a lot of competition. OK, so okay. that can set yourself apart and it can set aside the firm that you're associated with apart. Being a female, if you know, somebody wants to work with a female advisor, you're a female. There you go. Um, Also, you know, we we live in in a world today where diversity is really important for for companies and the culture and clients are looking for that, you know, not just male, female, but race as well. And so as a female in this industry, you know, that can be to your advantage that you may be a more attractive candidate for a firm to hire uh, because they want to have a more diverse workforce. So, um, you know, whenever I go to any of these industry conferences and I look around, I I see very clearly how I don't look like every other advisor out there. And so your voice may get heard more because it sounds different, because you look different from all the other advisors out there. I've I've had prospective clients say to me over the years, I had no idea. Like I've never come across a female advisor. Like I didn't know you all existed. You a
1: unicorn?
2: I'm like, no. I just, you know, we're 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 a minority um, in this business. But, but again, I think you can use that to your advantage. I might be the unicorn in that I, I try hard not to get pigeonholed as only wanting to work with women.
1: But- so you see it as an opportunity, but it is also consciously one that you actually decided you didn't want to pursue as, as your individual opportunity and path.
2: Correct. Correct.
1: Okay. So what was the, what was the low point on this journey?
2: You know the low point. The, I feel like the lower points happened early in my career with a crisis of confidence that I experienced because I had never, never had that um, issue in, in in my my life up up to that point. Um, I also had uh, another low point. As, as glamorous as these Coke retirement workshops sounded, and I you know, found my my calling, and I dominated and and whatnot. I also had a low point as a working mom, uh, that, that actually happened with those seminars. And so situation where, uh, twins at the time, I think they were about a year and a half, two years old. Uh, my husband was working full time. He was traveling away on business. I have this seminar to give at Coca-Cola at 8am the next morning. We have no family anywhere near us. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, and, uh, uh, I, uh, and the kids were in daycare. Our, our babies were in daycare and, um, midnight, one of the, the babies wakes up and spikes a fever <sighs> and I'm like, husband's out of town. I think he was in Texas. I've got to be at Cooks headquarters at 8am to deliver this seminar. Nobody else at the company was, is, was trained at that point to, to deliver the, the seminar content it was just me. And so I remember going online to uh, an organization called Care.com Midnight, and I searched for a caregiver in my area that was available to come to my house at six o'clock in the morning.
1: <laughs> Just and praying I'm, that like someone is actually awake up and, and awake. seeing this at a yes. midnight who could take the gig six hours from
2: Yes. Now. And I think that at two in the morning, somebody responded, which is kind of hindsight and scary. What's this caregiver doing up at two in the morning? So this, this woman comes to my house at 6 o'clock in the morning. I leave my babies with her. I haul it down. I give this seminar you know, and haul it home. I mean, low point as, as a working <clears> mom. <throat> I left my babies with a total stranger praying to God they would be there and be okay when I got back. Um,
1: For, fortunately, Care.com had a reasonable vetting process. <laughs> yes,
2: they did. Perfect. They That's did. Um, but- But that was pretty pivotal for me as well, because when we got, um, uh, when we had our third child, uh, you know, I knew, I knew something had to give. That rubber band was stretching and it was going to snap at some point, so Um, we made the decision and that was in 2012, um, that my husband would, would, uh, retire as an engineer and he would, he would become a full-time dad. And so, you know, that I take that low point that I had in my career. And this was, this was a personal low point, you know, as a working mom and figured out how to not ever have put me in that situation again or put my children in that situation again. And so we changed our family, our whole family dynamic, uh, as a result of that low point.
1: And so how does that conversation flow?
2: Well, so like, like most working couples, young working couples, first you got to talk about finances, right? Well, can we make things meet on one income? And when we did the math between, you know, daycare expenses and, and his income, my income, I was like, well, your whole paycheck, honey, is going to pay for caregiving expenses. That's kind of crazy. So um, he was working for a company at the time that was large enough to offer FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act. So he was able to take 12 weeks off unpaid, but he was guaranteed to get his job back. And so we said, this is going to be a test run. We're gonna try this, see if it works out. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul. He'll go back to work. We'll figure something else out.
1: Oh, interesting. So, so a twelve-week unpaid FMLA leave was like the test run. Let's yes. do this for three months and actually yep. see how it goes.
2: Yep. And we also discussed too if it worked out, we're gonna reevaluate it every six months after that. Um, you know, sensitive to okay. this is a non-traditional role, right? There's, there's, I know there's now more and more family dynamics where the woman is, is the full-time you know worker the breadwinner the dad stays at home but it's not as not very common in, in the south <laughs> where where we are and that had its whole set of challenges so we we said we're gonna reevaluate this. Well Michael we knew within the first week it was the right decision for our family. The amount of stress that rolled off my shoulders was significant. I knew my kids were cared for their dad was there he had it he is so happy uh, being, being a full-time dad, you know, he, he, he worked for a paycheck. He didn't work for satisfaction. So this dynamic worked for us. And, and, you know, what happened within the first year of, of my husband um, retiring to be a full-time dad, because I had this extra time now, and focus on my career, I was able to replace his income within one year. Wow. So I attribute a lot of my success since 2012 to my family dynamic. And I've been able to put my career first when I wanted to or needed to. I've said yes to so many opportunities that would have been a challenge prior to, you know, if if we still were, were two working parents.
1: So what else do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you 15, 20 years ago as you were getting started?
2: I would tell myself to not work on nights and work weekends to try to get yourself ahead. So um 2015, I consciously made the decision to stop working on nights and weekends. I had an experience and so my husband was a full-time dad at this point. Kids were little. Um I would, you know, put the kids down to bed, sit on the couch. You know, he, w- he wanted to watch a, a TV show with me and I'd sit there next to him, but I'd be cranking away on financial plans, Excel spreadsheets, emails, whatever, to like 11 o'clock at night. Eventually he would get tired of waiting for me to put the computer away and, and just go to bed. And I, ha- I had this moment one night, I'm like, what am I doing? This is insane. Like, I, you know, my husband's sitting here waiting for me to spend time with me and I'm putting my career in front of my marriage. And, um. So in 2015, I made the conscious decision to stop doing that. 2015, coincidentally, was the year that Coke had that severance package Yeah. That, that I, that I you know, I crushed it. But I crushed it, Michael, you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And I stopped. And I it is a rare, rare occasion that I deal with business-related matters on the weekend. And it is the rare occasion I do it at night. And so if I were to go back and do it again, I would take all those years of the first, you know, 10 15 years of my career and I would work less at night and work less on the weekends.
1: But I mean what changed? Like I mean did you shed a bunch of clients? Did you hire more people? Like presuming the work was still there that had to get done somehow. So what what changed that you could turn off the evenings and weekends?
2: So I I just had to get more comfortable that I would never have an empty inbox. I had to get comfortable that I wasn't going to get fired by a client if I didn't get back to them within two hours. Uh, And I had to, I had to almost start training my clients to not expect immediate turnaround from me. Um, And, and, you know, I felt it was a risk right? I knew it was a risk because unfortunately by being so proactive and so Johnny on the spot, I had trained my clients to expect that from me. I only had one client call the office and say, is everything okay with Lisa? She usually gets back to me within two hours and it's been 24. (laughs) Yes, everything's fine with Lisa. Um, But so, so just, you know, when people start seeing you respond 24, 48 hours later versus two hours later, you know, it, it, it's setting those expectations subtly. So it took some time uh, to do that. I didn't wave this big banner and say, don't expect a call back from me, you know, within three days. And I started having to do a better job of prioritizing the urgent versus the important. Um, and so I, you know, I I took that upon myself, you know, and I I just had to figure it out. Um, and I, I love what I do. Uh, and I think I'm more productive and focused during normal working hours because I I can balance that a little bit better with my family life and, and personal goals, um, not being just exhausted working 24-7.
1: And so, was there something specific you did with clients to just like uh, adjust those expectations? I mean, did you just dial it back from two hours to a day or two and let it be and let the dust settle, or did you like reach out to them and say, "Hey, I just want to, you know, update your expectations on what responsiveness for me is going to look like in the future"? I mean, like, was it was it something proactive you communicated, or did you just start doing it differently and 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 manage to it?
2: I just started doing it differently and managing to it. Um, the other, the other time in my career that I, I made that change, and I, again, I didn't go wave the banner or tell clients was in 2017. So this is about you know two years into not working on nights and weekends. Um, in 2017, I stopped taking on new clients. Since that time, I've brought in almost a hundred new clients to the firm. And so I really ran, started ramping up my business development and started transitioning clients to other advisors who could serve them more effectively on a day to day basis. As I was focused more on business development, um, and so business development did—I I found that it cut down on things like you know client meetings. You know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm spending that time. You know outside at, at networking events, but as I started transitioning clients to other advisors, you know I, w- I was able to to know those clients were well taken care of by somebody who had their head in the game all day, every day, you know you know if I was out at an event or whatnot. And so i I started figuring out better how to leverage my skills and time and talent, as well as making sure the clients were well cared for. And I realized, you know, I can't do it all. I can't bring in 20, 25 clients a year and serve 130 clients effectively and lead a group of people within the organization and, you know, all those other operational things, you know, that happen when you're a leader in an organization. So it's not easy. It's not easy. I I don't think I have the magic formula. I'm still working on it every day. Um, but I think a lot of it is, is you have to draw your own boundaries because this, in this business, the work can be endless and you have to draw boundaries so that you can operate more effectively and bring your A game when, when you're focusing on your work, your clients and your career.
1: So any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors that are getting started today?
2: Yeah, I would say any of that confidence crisis you might be facing, throw it out the window. Um, You'll get there. Surround yourself with smart people. Always surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Um, Watch carefully how other advisors work with clients. Be in as many client meetings as you can early on, because that's how you'll figure out how you want to operate as an advisor. So take the best of Mm -hmm. what you like, the best of what you see across different professionals and figure out how to, how to pave your own path and how to create your own brand and, and how to become your own, your own success story.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is the, literally the word success means very different things to different people. And so you've had this wonderful career in, in growing as an advisor and a partner and an author and a podcaster. Uh, and so the, the, Career end is going very successfully, but how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: At this point in my career, success is no longer about what I've accomplished for myself in terms of new clients, new AUM, salary, job title. Success for me is how I can bring somebody else along and show them how they can pave that way to success for themselves. So sponsoring younger advisors, really going in there and putting them in the room or helping to see them with clients and watching them develop and and make money and be successful and start attracting new clients themselves. You know, it's I feel like I'm doing my part to keep the evolution of this business going by helping mm-hmm. other people on their path to success and that's what brings me so much satisfaction now at this point in my career.
1: Amen. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much Lisa for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure. It was a lot of fun.
1: Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com